Hello and welcome to the Sleep Science Podcast. I'm Penny Lewis, a neuroscientist specialising in sleep and memory and the presenter of this show. In the podcast, we talk about all things related to sleep, from dreaming and sleepwalking to what sleep does for our brain and body and how we can get more out of our sleep. Please see our Sleep Science webpage for details. Today's guest is Professor Wen Biao Gan from the Skirball Institute in the Department of Neuroscience and Physiology at New York University's School of Medicine. Wen Biao's work is largely conducted at the synaptic level, and we talk through sleep's surprising role in forming, maintaining, and protecting new connections that are made after learning. Our discussion focuses on dendritic spines. These are tiny protrusions which allow neurons to make additional connections and which often grow as a result of learning and can also either grow or retract after sleep or sleep deprivation. REM and slow wave sleep behave quite differently with respect to dendritic spines and we talk a lot about their distinct contributions. This episode is slightly more technical than usual but I think you'll find it fascinating to learn about how sleep impacts on actual measurable neuroplasticity in the brain. I really hope you'll enjoy our conversation. Wendy Algan, welcome to the Sleep Science Podcast. It's really a huge pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Penny. It's uh, really my great pleasure and honor to be here. Yeah, so I'm I'm very excited about it, and I, I know I'm going to learn a lot. For me, I'm particularly excited to talk to you, I have to say, because you work in such a different field of sleep from myself. And this is why I say I know that I can learn a lot, because when I interview people like Bob Stickold, Kampala, you know, I know all of their work back to front, and we work on very similar things, we share similar ideas. But in your case, it's a whole new universe, right? So let me kick off with um, just a question about your background. So uh, I'm very curious how you got interested in neuroplasticity and and how that eventually led you into an interest in sleep as well. Yeah, so uh, my background, uh, uh, actually in college, I studied laser physics. But uh, when I applied for a PhD program, I, I, at the time, I become very interested in how the brain works, particularly, uh, for example, how our brain can constantly uh, encode information that we can, st- you know, we can study all the time through our life. But at the same time, we can also remember lots of things that, that we, we studied before. And basically, it's the, how the brain can keep encoding information and, and also can maintain them over time. So that's how I become interested uh, in neuron science. And I, I went to uh, Columbia University, did my PhD with uh, Eduardo Marcano, my postdoc advisor. Then uh, one of the things that we're curious is about how the connections in the brain uh, are made, how they're maintained, because I thought, you know, because our brain has so many synapses, uh, and their connections between uh, neurons. And, you know, they are supposed to be very plastic. And this plasticity, you know, it's very important for the animals to encode new information during learning or new experience. Uh, but at the same time, some of the connections may, may have to be maintained in order for the animals to remember 
what they uh, they learned, uh, and what mechanism of maintaining this information uh, or connections is not really uh, well understood. So I thought when uh, I started my lab at a New York University Medical School, and uh, we had the opportunity to be able to directly visualize these connections in the mouse cortex with a technology developed at that time. Specifically, there was a development of great green fluorescent proteins that uh, is genetic encoded, uh, you know, uh, proteins that can be expressed in the mouse brain to label uh, sparsely labeled cells, individual neurons. Uh, so that allows us to see, for instance, label the synaptic structures like post-synaptic dendritic spines. Uh, and at the same time, there was this uh, technology uh, called a two-photon microscopy that using a high-energy uh, pulsed infrared laser to illuminate this uh, fluorescence and so we can detect them. The reason we use this uh, infrared light is because this uh, laser pulse can penetrate the biological tissue much deeper. So with this combination of green fluorescent protein to label few cells in the brain, and with these two photon microscopy allow us to image uh, these labeled structures, particular synapses. So we were able to, for the first time, to uh, directly uh, monitor the changes of these uh, connections over time, over hours, days, even months or years. So and that was the first time we were able to see that. So I was thinking that time when I just started my lab, like I combined this technology. So to start to ask a question, how stable these connections are in the, in the brains are over time, how uh, this change, how this connection have changed over time during learning. But after a while, we, what we learned at that time was that also they, you know, they interested in adult cortex, the mouse cortex. Vast majority of the, these connections are pretty stable. Some of them can change over time. Slowly, slowly. Anyway, so all this experimental learning paradigm taught us that the connections changes, that formation and elimination, occurred over many hours, not immediate during the actual learning process. So that raises the issue, okay, maybe the sleep plays a role. And, you know, I know this is a very long process for me to get into the sleep uh, field. So I'm a, a latecomer. But of course, uh, any, everyone in the world, I guess, would be curious about why do we need to sleep? What exactly sleep does to our brain during this eight hours uh, a night period? And what exactly, uh, what is the most unique function of sleep? I, I think those are you know, fascinating questions. That's what also, you know, I was always curious, but I didn't never thought we, we could actually do some experiments in the brain to directly observe the effect of sleep on the changes of these connections after learning. That's how I got into this. Uh, that was about uh, more than 10 years ago. I have to say for me, as someone that, you know, I study mainly behavior in humans or else brain activity using fMRI and EEG, very indirect measures. It's just incredible. Uh, the kind of work that you do where you can actually see the physical basis of learning and memory in this way. So 
this kind of growth of new dendritic spines that represents, as you just said, new networks, you know, new neurons kind of connecting and interacting, new memories, or else similarly, the loss of those spines and connections. Yeah, I mean, it's a physical manifestation of what I consider as a more conceptual thing, which is learning. So it's very exciting to me. Um, so let me just ask you, you have a paper in 2012 in which you use this two-photon microscopy to look at these dendritic spines. And my understanding about this paper is that you showed a similar kind of rate turnover of dendritic spines in both wake and sleep, but you also found that there is more elimination. So in sleep, they seem to be reducing the dendritic spines more than in wake. Is that right? Can you talk a bit about the paper? In that study, we look at a barrel cortex in young animals. We did not introduce any uh, new experience into this, so we cannot say much about how sleep affected learning process. Perhaps we can say something about how sleep is important for the development. In that study, when we compare the degree of spines that are eliminated in animals with sleep versus no sleep for a few hours, I think that the elimination of spines or these connections is significantly higher, even within a couple of hours, compared to the animals that are without a sleep. So suggesting that the sleep is doing something and pruning our connections. And also we know during that period, uh, particularly layer five pyramidal cells, that's what we're imaging, uh, there's a uh, net loss of synapses during that period. So it's interesting that during uh, development, in the a, in a baby phase uh, period, that you see an explosion of a synapse, new synapses are forming. But then there's a period, uh, there's a net loss of connections, the pruning of uh, those existing connections. And uh, that data suggests that sleep might play a role in eliminating those uh, the early formal connections, I would say. But, you know, we did not distinguish those synapses that are formed very early on, which is very recent form. But at least it says that somehow sleep or activity during sleep facilitated the elimination of existing connections that formed during development. But we also saw that with, with or without sleep, you still see uh, the formation weight because the weight are similar between the mice with or without sleep. So we cannot say that sleep specifically facilitates the formation or not because the weight are the same. But maybe the, the sleep regulating the location of where you know, the synapses are formed that different from the awake experience, so we don't know. So that was the study we did in 2012. I mean, it seems like that study got you interested in sleep. It got you to start thinking about sleep and, and start thinking, well, in what case would sleep actually be, be influencing the plasticity differently than in wake? So then you started playing with, maybe playing with different learning tasks and looking at this and exploring these questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'd be interested in uh, Steve being working on this for several years before, but we did we did not have a good way to attack that uh, at that time. Because before, that was 2012, before that we had actually a study in 2009, we published a study about how motor training induces new spine form uh, in the motor cortex, 
and a small fraction of this new connection can last for, for many, many years. And it suggests that these new connections are very important in helping uh, you know, maintaining the more new motor skill. Because we also, in that study, we found that the degree of new connections that are formed and maintained correlates really well with the performance improvement after learning, long-term improvement. At that time, we already started to uh, get interested in sleep because, as I said, that we found that the new connections are not formed immediately during the training process, but are formed progressively over days. So that was suspicious that to us that, oh, you know, we sleep uh, probably is a role. And also, if you think about all the you know, wonderful studies about uh, the sleep uh, replay and uh, the patterns of activity in, in doing sleep that are different from the awake experience, uh, all these uh, electrophysiological studies, uh, recordings, and neuronal activity is really like, like a currency in a society. It really dictates uh, you know, how the information uh, flows and how things get done. So you could imagine that activity to learning process or wake experience changes the connections. Then you would have to say that during sleep, these connections has to be modified by the activity during this REM sleep or non-REM sleep, right? So that was you know, sort of logical to think about, you know, sleep must play a role in modifying the connectivity. But we didn't know how to attack this question for a while uh, because I would always thought that, you know, the, the individual, you know, extra potential or uh, a short brief period of neuronal activity might change uh, the strengths of synapses instead of inducing the formation or elimination, which would take much longer. Because we know the synaptic plasticity can be basically broadly defined as, you know, changes of synaptic strength, which is changes the, uh, how strong is presynaptic and the postsynaptic neurons communicate, right? You can just reduce the strength of the connection instead of like detach these two and make a new one. So to form a new one or eliminate permanently the existing one, it takes much longer. So how would you be able to link the sleep activity causally with the elimination formation? That was hard. So we spent quite a lot of time to look at, a, can we manipulate the sleep and look at the changes of the strength of synapses instead of the formation and elimination? Because I thought that was very hard to make a link for a few years. But then we moved to the young animal, and that was 2012 paper. But we're not very satisfied with that study because uh, there's no new experience introduced. We cannot really address how sleep might help uh, encoding new information. And then we did this work you know, a few years later, uh, it was 2014, I guess, we published a paper about how sleep helped the formation of new connections after learning. Yeah, so it sounds like you had various pieces of information. You knew that when new information is learned, you get new connections, and you knew that the connections are plastic in both wake and sleep and then you were interested in how sleep might influence that formation of brand new connections if something has been learned. And so you tried looking at that precisely. And, and this is what the 2014 
paper was about, yes. right? So, yes. I mean, that was a very exciting paper. Can you describe that paper, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. So, uh, in that paper, what we found first is that when we train mice on running on the rotating board for about one hour, then when we, we can then image this connection forming on a particular cell type called layer five pyramidal cells. So the cortex has six layers. This pyramidal cell uh, somas are located uh, in layer five. These are the major output uh, cells uh, in the cortex. So when we look at uh, apical dendrites that you know they are close to the surface of the cortex, we, what we found was once we trained animal. Uh, with one task, let's say that animal running forward on a rotating rod, we can observe uh, new synapses or new spines form on a subset of uh, branches of the individual cell, not all the branches. And then when we train animal with a different task, let's say the animal running on the backwards, we actually see the formation of a uh, new synapses or new spines uh, on a different set of branches of the same cell in many cases. So that was the uh, new finding. Uh, these actually events we can detect even uh, over a period of eight hours. So when we, when we train them, we train animal running backwards. Then we look at uh, doing sleep. We ask uh, what cells are activated. It tend, you tend to see the cells activated are the most recently activated cell, which is the backward running cell. And uh, when we look at uh, this formation and, uh, of new connections, it seems that these connections tend to be related to the backward instead of uh, forward. So, so that tells us that very likely this uh, reactivation could also play a role during sleep to induce new spine form. But do you think that the backward running cells are reactivating more because it's more recent or do you think it's because it's a more novel behavior that i mean mice don't normally run backwards right so they are learning a new skill yes but the point is that you found this kind of reactivation and then if you disrupted it whether you disrupted it with the chemicals or or with the behavior then you found that you've got less spine formation on the dendrites that were specific to that backward running, right? Yes, yes. So, I mean, that is, again, for me, it's a, it's a very exciting result because it's a kind of physiological manifestation of the idea that is, you know, very strong in the sleep literature that reactivation promotes strengthening of connections. And here you're showing that if you disrupt that reactivation, then you don't get the spine formation that is that is a manifestation of those new connections. So it's a very strong demonstration, I think. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And interestingly, in this case, it was non-REM sleep. But then in your subsequent work, you've really moved on to focus on REM sleep much more directly, I think. So I know you had a, a, a nice paper on how REM is involved in selectively pruning synapses. Um, in 2017. Can you talk about that one and explain the transition? Yes. So, so then, uh, because I, as I said, in this work that we look at, we, when we look at the after motor training, uh, new spines are formed on subset of branches, 
uh, in over a period of eight hours. But then we also show that it seems non-REM sleep plays a role in promoting this formation. But somehow the non-REM sleep is not that important for this during this period. Then, you know, it's always puzzling to think about, okay, now, you know, what does the REM sleep have any function in, uh, in this process or it maybe just have nothing to do with this connections? Maybe have some other functions. So that was the question. So we did try to approach this question uh, over a couple of angles, but we never had really good uh, handle. But it was, uh, you know, eventually, I mean, after a couple of years, we realized that, you know, uh, one of the uh, very interesting, you know, feature of new connections form is that you would observe a very rapid formation of new connections within the first few hours after learning. But vast majority of these connections uh, cannot be maintained uh, over next days or weeks. At least, let's say, I'll give you an example that if you find over next, you know, 24 hours, you see 100 new connections are formed in, in a certain area, certain neurons, and you would almost for sure predict that half of these connections would disappear uh, in next day. And, and then the third day, you probably see 25% of them will, will be eliminated. So progressively, you will see only, uh, you know, like 10 or 20% of the new connections that are formed can be maintained. So once they're maintained, they get stronger, they actually can persist for a long time, for months or even years. So what this tells us is that it seems there's this uh, highly selective process to keep these new connections that formed initially during the learning process. Some of these connections can be formed during learning without a sleep. But, but it, it seems there's a process in the brain to selectively maintain these connections. So the, then we start to ask whether REM may, might have uh, a function in this process. It's a bit long shot. So when we did experiments, you know, then the, the surprise came is that we actually see, so if we train any more, uh, you know, let's say running forward, we identify new connections formed within eight hours, then we follow these new connections over the next eight hours or 16 hours in mice without REM or with REM. So in this case, we specifically uh, deprived REM sleep. And we did a control experiment in two ways. One is that just not to disturb the animal in the control mice so the animal would have REM sleep. Uh, another group of animals, we touched the animal the same number of time, times that we, as we touched the animal for REM sleep deprivation. But we touched the animal doing non-REM sleep. So we disturbed a little bit of non-REM, but the animal still have REM sleep. Uh, so these are two controls. So then we ask, does REM sleep affect the maintenance of these new connections? And what we found uh, is that surprisingly, in animals without REM, many more new connections are maintained than animals with, with REM. So that was surprising because you, typically you have non-REM, then you have REM during the uh, sleep you know, periods. So the puzzling thing is that why would the uh, brain you know, form all these new connections in a non-REM-dependent way, then REM just go there afterwards to remove some of the new connections. So I don't know the answer either to why REM would need to reduce those connections, but um, we have some interesting findings from computational modeling that 
And, and this is also mirrored by some of the results in the birdsong literature with Deregnacord, that the birds, you know, they are learning across the day, the songs, and then at night, their performance gets worse. And then they learn again across the day. And this repeats, you know, for many days. And there is a correlation between how much they forget across the night and how good they get in the end, in the end of, say, three months. So the ones who forget more every night, they improve more in the end. And we find the same thing in computational modeling where we're modeling replay. And our idea about this, this is just, you know, very hand wavy idea is that you need to avoid overfitting. So you need to avoid kind of strengthening up your memory for particular events so strongly that you can't generalize, uh, that you're just locked into those events. And so maybe that's the kind of reason why you need to remove some connections and then regrow and keep doing that process until you have connections that are representative of the whole sample, not just related to particular learning events. I think that RAM definitely has uh, several functions that, uh, like what you just mentioned, that uh, for forgetting, uh, maybe for for uh, overflowing the brain, uh, or create this uh, uh, friends of the called uh, Sparrow's memory. That you know, like that's a neural network idea that you have like this uh, part of memory that maybe not maybe interfere. You imagine interfere with each other. But the, the, the thing that to us that you know, I'm a uh, you know, my, my goal is try to understand the effect of sleep on a change of connections. It's so interesting. And to me, I mean, hearing you describe it like that, it just, it sounds to me like a system that is making minor tweaks or adjustments. So, you know, it learns something, but then that's not the perfect learning. There is still some error. And so it needs to adjust that learning by moving the connection slightly to the side um, or maybe having several weaker connections in slightly different locations, but very nearby. That's what you're describing, right? And that is exactly, by the way, what a backpropagation neural network does because, you know, it makes an attempt and then it has an error signal and then it adjusts the connection strengths or or the weights in different nodes um, by some amount, depending on how big the error was. So for me, there's a parallel there. I don't know if you think that's relevant. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that uh, it, it could, you know, very well related to the back propagation. Uh, we did see, as I would tell, that uh, that uh, dendritic calcium spikes plays a very important role in this process. You know, I think that uh, it's very possible the back propagation uh, from the soma. The dendrites plays a role there. In, in this case, so I would say that RAM, this is one of the functions of RAM, but well, we had that data for, 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 for some time before we published it, but that time we still feel like this, you know, it seems like not, still not satisfying because it seems like you, you, you could imagine again the new connect, new experience would do the same thing as what RAM does to get rid of the other new connections in response to different in the first task. The second task should be able to also cause the elimination of new connections because the new connection needs good generative activity. The activity would naturally, in my view, cause rewiring, you know, formation or elimination. So I think that would not speak to still whether RAM has something unique. 
I was just going to say, so now what we're talking about, it's very much relevant to your most recent paper or the most recent one I know about, which is the 2020 paper about REM sleep promoting experience dependent spine elimination. So this is, it's, it's a continuation of the same story, isn't it? Yeah, 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 that's right. So before that, let me just uh, uh, give a rough metaphor about this, what I say, because it's a bit complicated. And I would, so I was thinking about this, uh, you know, what exactly is RAM uh, doing in the brain in terms of uh, changes of the connections. So RAM is basically, uh, you can think about it as a, a similar to a role of a, a lab manager or, or a PI. Now the PI would receive a lot of applications to, to join the lab, right? And you can consider these applications are new connections, okay? They're coming, but as a PI, you cannot just, uh, you, you have to take some of the people, new, new applications. You have to reject some of the new connect, uh, applications, right? Because you cannot fulfill a lab, like you take, you know, if there's 100 people apply, you accept them, you cannot, first of all, you cannot hold on to all these you know, candidates uh, or people, and you cannot really help them. So what you do is to reject some, actively reject some of them and take some of the uh, candidates. And then what you do is to uh, help them to remain in your lab and let them grow, help them to maintain. So you have this role, you know, selectively remove some of the candidates because they're not fit and maybe not good for your lab uh, development. And you, the one that you maintain, you actually help them, strengthen them. Nurture them and help them. So you have this uh, unique role as a director of the lab. So I think that's what RAM is doing. This role is not is different from a uh, new experience, right? Like just to new experience, probably just you can never predict what new experience would do, a life experience, awake experience would do, because that's, that's highly variable. The new experience probably the goal is to change the, the circuits because you need the new information to get in. You would need to change the existing connectivity. But RAM probably is doing not a simple thing. I doing two things at least to help maintain the connection, but also to get rid of something. So it's very unique in, in that regards. So then the 2020 paper, that was things that we, we know that, you know, lots of our experience, not just uh, form new connections, cause new con- connections to form, but also eliminate the predominantly connections. And in fact, doing, uh, for example, development, like you know, early on during development, every muscle fiber even in the periphery, you have many motor axons uh, from different neuro- motor neurons converging to innovate each muscle fiber in our skeletal muscle. And it's a massive elimination of connections, right? Uh, that, you know, in the end, you're on the one muscle, one motor neuron, innovate. In the brain, you, know, you don't see such a dramatic elimination, but it's, you know, there's a lot of elimination, pruning going on. So you have this overproduction uh, the circuits and you have elimination. You know, by pruning of the, you know, you probably innovated you know, neurons, then you probably sharpen the connectivity, make a functional circuit. So that was, in some cases, a predominant uh, feature of the neuron development, the brain development. For example, in the visual cortex, what we found is that if you manipulate the visual experience, if you cover one eye, you would see that uh, the eyes uncovered will actually be there, but you don't see that a lot of connections formed 
But in the, you know, in the first few days, you see actually elimination of the connection that very likely corresponding to the, the covered eye. The eye does not receive inputs or light stimulation during this critical period. And also doing uh, fear conditioning that you uh, might associate uh, a tone and a shock is in a frontal cortex or uh, on a motor cortex. What we found was the quite robust elimination of existing connections. And we have some data to suggest that these eliminated connections during this paradigm are related to the sound input. So the idea is that by eliminating these connections quickly, and the animal would not move, you know, initiate a movement in the motor cortex. So the freeze, once listen to the tone, because they, they sense the danger, they freeze. But so you, you can imagine that animal, by learning this, by adding new connections to suppress the movement. But in fact, in this case, it's simple. It's just eliminating the connections that are driven by the sound. And so the cell would not fire. It would just move, not move. So it's very simple. Uh, it looks very robust. So, so can, then, can I can I check? Sorry, can I check if I understood that? So what you're saying is, I mean, we've said that RAM is important for eliminating and selectively strengthening. And what you're saying is, in a conditioning task, it's actually the elimination of the connections which facilitates the freezing. So if you prevent the elimination, then the animal doesn't freeze as as much. Yeah, that's correct. Uh-huh. So in this uh, paradigm. Uh, you know, when animal associate a tone and a shock. So typically, when animal listen to the tone, if you look at an animal in the box, the animal actually become curious, they're moving around. But when a shock comes, then after a few times, then you play the tone. The animal now somehow associated the tone with the shock, right? Then they become, they freeze instead of moving, okay? So then the question is, how could that, how does the animal do that, right? Uh, if you look at the connections in, in the brain within a few hours, you know, eight hours or even four hours, you actually see the increased elimination of connection in the motor cortex or frontal surgery cortex. And if you look at the activity of these uh, connections that eliminate, they actually were driven by the sound, excited by the sound. So they, uh, the data suggests that by just removing these connections, so the cells in the motor cortex would not be activated. So it's just simply not going to move anymore, just freeze. If indeed, when we plug this uh, activity in the motor cortex or frontal associated cortex, and you don't see elimination, then you don't see an animal will actually not freeze. So REM also helps to get rid of some of our connection during this new task, uh, really a new experience or learning experience or, or developmental uh, manipulation of visual inputs. And we also found in this case that the in uh, these different brain regions where imaging, uh, we see also this huge calcium elevation on this dendrite. Uh, and when we block this calcium activity, uh, specifically during REM, we also prevented the elimination of the existing connections. So overall, I think this just suggests to us that REM, you know, really helps. It and you know depends on the you know, different types of experience, different brain regions. Overall, I feel that REM helps to, um, you know, remodel, you know, experience or learning depending on plasticity. So in a motor learning case, it helps to maintain some of the new connections. 
Well, in the interest of time, I'm aware we should start to wrap up, but I wanted to ask you just a couple more things briefly. So I'm curious um, how you see your results in light of the synaptic homeostasis hypothesis from Tononi and Sirelli, because of course they have proposed, in a way it's quite close what they've proposed, but in a way it's different. They've proposed that the slow wave sleep is important for downscaling, for reduction of spines and um, connection strengths, and they don't really deal with REM. And what you've found is that REM is important for this reduction and the, the, the non-REM, the slow wave sleep seems to be important more for strengthening things. So do you have thoughts about how these can be reconciled? Uh, yes. So I, I think that the sleep activity are quite complicated. So it's possible that, uh, you know, the non-REM sleep has a different function in uh, layer two or three uh, pyramidal cells, for example, because we've been always dealing with layer five up to now. Uh, maybe the non-REM sleep has a uh, you know, very important function, like downscaling, particularly in layer two or three. But in terms of layer five pyramidal cells, I think that you know, what we found at least is that non-REM sleep uh, promote the connections to form, but that does not exclude the possibility of downscaling of like existing connections, which we have not looked at carefully. So I think that downscaling is possible. The downscaling it could happen during non-rise, even to the layer five pyramid cells. In some cases, like uh, motor training, we, we don't know for sure. Okay, the non-REM can make connections. So it's not as simple as downscale, at least from layer five pyramid cells. Now, REM sleep also, as, as I said, that's a quite complicated uh, effect uh, in regulating new connections. We have, we have some data, but we haven't published uh, about a, you know, REM sleep on, a, on a, uh, existing connections. I think overall, I think that it looks to me that downscaling uh, is just uh, very likely exist the sleep effect of downscaling, very existing. And the certain circumstances, but not all. Of, uh, it's not uh, you know the uh, only function of sleep in terms of synaptic uh, changes of ch- uh, synaptic strength or or the, con- or, or the formation or elimination. I don't think what when I present. I mean the data we have necessarily has to be contradicting with the uh, downscaling function of sleep. I don't think that's necessarily contradicting, and also it's not. Contradicting with the function, of course, that uh, sleep have the process of memory consolidation. Yeah, as usual, it's the the story is more complicated than we thought. Yeah, which I I, I agree. I think it's a good answer. Um, yeah, I think we need to like maybe you know just look at it more carefully. Look at different cell types, uh, different learning tasks, uh, and try to really understand what's the unique function of sleep. And uh, so there will be less mystery. That's what we are trying to do, right? We're all passionate about understanding why do we need to sleep? What's so unique about it? Yeah, exactly. And that actually brings me to the final question, which you may have just answered. But my question is, what do you see as the really big challenges or big questions that we should be addressing or that you want to address next? 
Yeah, it's hard for me to think about uh, field uh, about sleep, but I'm really. I think that you know, as you would agree that to look at things in more detail uh, and the circular level and the cellular level and maybe molecular level as well, uh, look at in live animal, not just mice, but uh, look at you know, maybe large animals, look at different faces, different uh, types of sleep, like, as we said, you know, discussed before about phasic and you know, tonic RAM or PTO waves or spindle, all these, they, they basically, in my eyes, they are all activity. And uh, coupled with uh, different sets of gene expression in the cell, there must be reasons for this. So if we really understand that this level, uh, then we would have much less mystery, a much better understanding of our sleep function. That's what I think we should be doing. And of course, that animal study can replace the human study of sleep. So it would be really great to combine uh, information from a human study and animal study, go back and forth to uh, really try to help uh, understanding the function of sleep. You've been listening to the Sleep Science Podcast with me, Penny Lewis. My guest today was Professor Wen Biao Gan from New York University. And the producers were Bianca Stretter and Sophie Smith. If you've enjoyed this show, please consider subscribing to the podcast or liking us on Twitter. We're planning a Q&A session for the last episode of this series. So if you have questions about this episode or anything sleep-related at all, please send them to us on Twitter at hashtag SleepSciencePodcastQ&A. If you'd like to hear other podcasts on sleep, please check out The Blunt Report, which has recently released a whole series on sleep, including an episode on the curious case of fatal familial insomnia. The Blunt Report aims to create interest in the world around us in a relaxing way that's easy to follow. Host Connor Blunt has spoken to some fascinating people, and it's well worth a listen. The Blunt Report is available on all platforms and even has a video podcast on YouTube. Thanks for listening today, and until next time, sleep well.